0: Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open up our hearts right now to receive it, uh, to just be drawn close to your presence and to absorb all that you want to say to us tonight. Please be glorified in our midst uh, to offer your kingdom and your power and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So on Wednesday nights, we find ourselves going through the Bible one book a week, give or take a few. And uh, that brings us tonight to the book of Nehemiah. By the end of the month, Lord willing, we will hit the book of Psalms, which means, in terms of actual word count, we'll have gone through half the Bible. Uh, So we are marching through at a a pretty aggressive pace, but but nonetheless, I think the overview is great. Bear in mind, and I try not to say this all the time just because I don't like to be super repetitive, but... um, Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings are not a substitute for personal time in the Word. They are a supplement. And so, you know, it's great to do an overview of the Bible. It's much greater to read the Bible yourself. And uh, so, you know, we're going through the Bible in a year as a church. Uh, today we read in Second Samuel. If you don't have one, there's a reading plan on the back table. You're welcome to grab one. Just start on April 7th tomorrow. And, uh, and keep going through it, and, and watch what the Lord wants to say to you through His Word personally. But simultaneously, we're trying to do an overview of the Word so that as we come to parts, as we're reading it, we hopefully have a better grasp of, okay, this is sort of what I'm looking at. This is, uh, you know, even if it's somewhat new territory, it's like, okay, I, I at least have a little bit of an awareness of what's going on and where we're going. So tonight, we're in the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah will bring us... Um, Historically, to the end of the Old Testament, so we've got, you know, Genesis starts at the beginning of the world. Nehemiah is going to take us up to the last point of recorded history in the Old Testament, and then there's about 400 years of of silence that's not documented in the scriptures, and then the next thing that happens is John the Baptist shows up on the scene. And so, Nehemiah by this point, you know, by the end of the month, we're halfway through the scriptures, but by the end of tonight, we're actually through the entire Old Testament history. And everything we read in the Old Testament from here on out is going to be tucked in somewhere. It'll fit in to somewhere that we've covered already. So, as a recap of where Nehemiah finds us, um, you know, the nation of Israel was established by God. They went down to Egypt. They came out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for a while and then settled in the land after a period of time they became a kingdom with an actual king they had three kings in israel and then they divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom the northern kingdom kept the name israel the southern kingdom went with the name judah northern kingdom uh, was conquered and dispersed uh really throughout the world the southern kingdom of judah was captured by the Babylonians. They were in captivity for 70 years. And then to fulfill the word of the Lord, they were brought back into their homeland. And Nehemiah takes place about 150 years after the captivity of uh, of the nation of Judah, but specifically the captivity of their capital city, which was Jerusalem. And Nehemiah really, in summary, is a book about a man obeying the will of God. It's about a man who just is doing life and finds himself in the midst of the plan of God, which is great because every single one of us is is in that exact same position. We're all doing our thing, but we're all simultaneously being called by God. We're all part of God's plan. God has something he wants to do with us. He has something he wants to do through us, and Nehemiah is just an incredible example of getting to watch that happen in somebody's life. So. It really d- it divides very neatly into two portions. The first portion is the first six chapters. And where Nehemiah's life calling is going to wind up taking him is he's going to be a man who's known for rebuilding things. Nehemiah, in the first ch- six chapters of the book, is going to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And then in the next seven chapters, he's going to help rebuild sort of the spiritual condition of the nation. So the first six chapters, chapter one and two, is the intro. That's usually where intros start. Um chapter one basically he gives us a little introduction to who he is and then he's living at the time in persia in the capital city really of the world at that point in time he's working for the persian king as a cupbearer, so his job is to make sure the food isn't poisoned simultaneously he's also the guy who's always standing right next to the king so he's probably got a lot of influence a lot of power a lot of wealth uh you know if you want to influence the king If you can get the cupbearer on your side, you're halfway there. And so Nehemiah's in this very influential position, but he's still a Jewish man. And one of his brothers comes back from the city of Jerusalem. This is now, whatever, 80 years after they had initially come back to Jerusalem from their captivity. And Nehemiah says, hey, how's it going? How's the city? And the guy says, it is rough. He says, the walls are broken down. The people are discouraged. There's really no traction going on at all. And Nehemiah is just, he's broken hearted over it. And it's one of those moments where the Lord stirs him up. The Lord stirs something in his heart and awakens something. And Nehemiah realizes this has a burden from the Lord for the city of Jerusalem. And what's he do about it? Well, he prays about it and he fasts about it. And what's interesting is in the context, we understand that Nehemiah actually prays and fasts about it for five months. Uh, Chapter one, verse one says it happened in the month Chislev, which is, a, is a, one of the Jewish months. And then chapter two, verse one, says it came about in the month Nisan. And we can map those out. And it's about five months. So for about five months, Nehemiah has this burden from God on his heart. And, and, he doesn't, and what does he do? Well, he doesn't do what most of us do when we get a burden from God on our hearts, which is let's just go slash and burn and make something happen. And we'll see, you know, uh, if there's loose bodies along the way when we're done, that's just, you know, side effects of we're just doing the will of God. No, Nehemiah, he prays about it. He is, he is waiting. He has a burden from the Lord, but he is willing to wait for God to establish what he wants done. He knows God wants to do something, but he doesn't fully see the picture. And so when we don't see the full, the full picture of what the Lord's trying to do, the best thing we can do is pray about it. He doesn't, he's not being sloppy about it. He's praying about it. He's fasting about it. He's taking this very seriously, trying to discern the will of the Lord. And so five months later, um, he winds up having kind of a chance encounter with the king where the king says, hey, you're looking a little bummed out today. What's going on? And he says, well, you know, my homeland is is in shambles and uh, and I'm kind of discouraged about that. The king says, well, what do you want? And Nehemiah is able to give him an answer. Nehemiah doesn't say, well, I, gee, I hadn't, I, I kind of figured you just wouldn't give me anything. So I hadn't bothered thinking about it. Nehemiah's got, got an answer. He's been praying about it and he's been ready. You know, Lord, if this opens up, I'm ready to go. The king says, what do you want? He says, well, I'd like to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. The king says, okay, go for it. Have at it. So that's the first two chapters. Nehemiah gets the burden from God. He gets the opportunity from God. And he's on his way to his mission field. He's on his way back to his homeland. He comes back uh, to Jerusalem. The, the walls are totally still busted down from when Nebuchadnezzar tore them down 150 years ago. Right? There's just been the cities. You know, people have come back to the city. They've rebuilt the temple at this point. Um, there's, you know, there's people living there, but it's still really a ghost town. It's, it's a shell of its former self. And, uh, and so Nehemiah goes, he looks around, he's like, yep, this is as bad as they said. And then he goes to the elders in chapter two, verse 17. And then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them, how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also by the king's words which he had spoken to me. And then they said, let us arise and build, so they put their hands to the good work. Nehemiah is stirred up by the Lord. And uh, oftentimes, there's two results that happen when somebody's stirred up by the Lord. The first is that other people are stirred up as well. Oftentimes, when a a person really starts to live out the call of God in their lives, other people around them start to catch that same fire and say, you know, I want to live out the will of God in my life. But simultaneously chapter two verse nineteen But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? So whenever we live out the call of God in our lives, very often two things happen. One, other people around us get inspired to respond to the call of God in their lives. Two, other people around us will try and discourage us. And quite probably make fun of us for what we're doing, because living the call of God in your life is not often very hip. It's not very practical. It's not very cool. uh, And it's oftentimes truly pretty mockable. Uh, Living out the will of God in our lives is not about what rationally makes sense from an earthly standpoint. So we get these, you know, the, the leaders of Israel say, you know what, let's go for it. And there's these three guys... They come up over and over again through the book of Nehemiah, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they say, what do you think you're doing? Right? Have you lost your mind? And Nehemiah says, no, thank you. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know where my mind's at. And so they, they're just going to keep going for it. They, they, they're going to build the wall. And chapter three, as we're working through what's happening here, they start building. And chapter three is an interesting, it's an interesting passage of scripture because it's really just a list of names. But I find it incredibly encouraging because it gives the list of who all building the wall and where they're building. And it says, you know, this person's building the wall, and then this person's building the wall. And it starts out, Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers the priest and built the sheep gate, and they consecrated it and hung its doors. So the high priest and his brothers start building the gate that's been torn down. They said, we could, we could fix that gate. Um, verse 8 says... Um, Next, so it's given the list. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Har of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And then a little later on, it says next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh. These are great names, aren't they? Uh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem made repairs, he and his daughters. Nowhere in chapter 3 does it say so and so the stonemason. Or so-and-so the, you know, the bricklayer. Or so-and-so the quarry master. Or so-and-so the construction expert. What do we got? Well, who's building this wall? You've got a priest. You've got, like, local officials. And we all know that government officials are famous for all their hard labor that they're used to performing. Um, you've got goldsmiths. You've got perfumers. And you've got a guy with his daughters. Right? I mean, that, that's not exactly the A-team. That's not like, you know the prime, the prime group, like, you know, I'm, 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 I just find myself really with the perfumer and the guy with his daughters, just both of those. I'm like, what on earth is a perfumer doing laying stone, right? Like, I mean, is he just getting inspired? Like, I'm going to name my next scent Essence of Lime or something. Like, what is, what are you going to do? I mean, it's like, he's moving bricks and his job is to make things smell nice. And then you've got this guy with his daughters, you know that whoever's next to that guy was probably working really hard, either A, because there's daughters around, or B, because there's no way you're going to get beat by a group of girls. Um, so they're just like, yeah. You know, that, I meant the portion next to the daughters had to have been going up super fast. But, but as it gives us this list in chapter three, what are they doing? They're building the wall right in front of their houses. It says, so-and-so built this section in front of his house. So-and-so built section right next to him in front of his house. What are they doing? They're responding to the call of God. They're responding to the prompting of God, but what are they really doing? They're tackling the job that's right in front of them. They're saying, God is stirring something up. God is moving something in our hearts. What are we going to do? Well, let's take the step that's right in front of us and do that. And after that, we'll see what needs to happen. After that, we'll help our brothers and sisters, but we're going to obey the Lord as it pertains right in front of us right now. And so often, that's how, that's how faithful service to the Lord works. You know, if you want to live a life of faithful service, ask the Lord for one step of obedience to take, and then take it. And then ask Him for the next step, and then take it. And then ask Him for the next thing to do, and take it. Ask Him for the next step of faith, and then take it. And what you'll find is a lifetime of walking in incredible faith. And each time, it's just one step. But it's a process. And so each one of these guys tackle the section right in front of them. And what happens? the wall, which has been broken down for 150 years, starts to go up. The wall is, is rising up. And, and you can measure its progress. And so, they're building the wall. And then chapters 4 and 5, we come into opposition. Because whenever the work of God starts to happen, what what comes next? Opposition. There's always opposition to the work of God. The work of God is never smooth sailing all the way. There's there's pieces, right? There's There's times of just... You know, incredible blessings and all that. But there is always opposition to the work of God. So, chapter 4 is opposition from the outside. And chapter 5 is opposition from the inside. And what do I mean by that? Well, in chapter 4, we said you know, these, these three guys who come up over and over again. Well, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. Well, they decide this is becoming a, a problem. Um, we need to We need to attack. If we want to, you know, right now these guys are exercising regional control over the area because the Israelites don't have any means of defense. They can't protect themselves. So these guys can really just walk all over them politically and and taxes and everything else. So these people have no means of protecting themselves. But if they get this wall up, then the regional power is going to diminish. And so these guys say, we've got to do something. So they plan a sneak attack. Somebody finds out about it, lets Nehemiah know. So Nehemiah and all his guys are ready. The sneak attack fails. But Nehemiah, like a good leader, says, You know what? We've established the fact that we can't trust these guys. We've established the fact that they're willing to use violence against us. Therefore, let's live with a sense of preparedness. So he says, So Nehemiah has sort of a retinue of guys who work for him directly. And those guys he puts as guards around the city. And then it says, um, in chapter four, verse 17, if you want to turn there, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried the burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. So Nehemiah says, all right, guys, we're gonna keep working. The work of God is not gonna stop just because we have opposition, but we're also gonna be practical and we're gonna build and we're also gonna be ready to fight. We're gonna do whatever it takes To continue to walk in obedience to the the word of God. And then we get this just beautiful picture of leadership. He's got the trumpeter standing next to him. And verse 19, I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So logistically, they're in a vulnerable state, because the wall isn't up yet. Um, and they're all spread out working on the portion of the wall in front of their house. So if if an army were to come in, it's going to take a little bit of time to get everybody into their defensive positions. And so Nehemiah has a trumpeter next to him, and he says, all right, guys, if you hear the trumpet, you come to us. And And the implication there is Nehemiah does not say, if you hear the trumpet, we will all go to the trumpet. If you hear the trumpet, that's where I'm going to be, and that's where the fight's going to be. Nehemiah says, "I am going to be in the middle of the fight. So when you so you come to wherever I'm at, and that's where the fight's going to be." Nehemiah has no interest in leading by, you know, saying the uh, problem is over there. Nehemiah says, "If there's a problem, I'm going to be in the middle of it. So you come find me, and we'll go from there. And God will fight for us." Nehemiah, as a leader, is always uh, willing to. Do anything that he's gonna ask anybody else to do. Nehemiah never tries to pass off anywhere in this record. He never tries to pass off the dirty jobs, he never tries to pass off the boring stuff. Nehemiah's always right in the middle of it, always going. He's always working as diligently as anybody else. And that's really, you know, that's really the responsibility of any leader. And, you know, we, you know, in a secular work world kind of a context, and in a political context, that's important, but how much more in a spiritual context? Right? How much more to say, you know, how, how much does it lose its effectiveness if we say, you guys go do the word of, the, of God in your life. You guys read the scriptures like it matters. You guys do, you know, you guys listen to the Lord. And then we don't do it. If we want to live a life that stirs people up, like Nehemiah's life did. If we want to live a life that stirs people up to respond to the call of God in their lives, we're going to have to be actively responding to the call of God in our lives. Chapter four is that opposition from the outside. It's the guys trying to come at them. And because Nehemiah's got this stance of defense and leadership, it doesn't, and because the Lord is protecting them, it doesn't come to pass. Chapter five, uh, they run into problems from the inside. Because at this point, Nehemiah realizes, hold on a second, some of the other Jewish officials are levying taxes against the poor people in the city. And the poor people are running out of food, and so they're having to actually sell their children into slavery to, to buy food for survival. And Nehemiah says, are you stinking kidding me? This is going to end right now. We are not going to try and uh, do the word of God and lie in our own pockets simultaneously. We are going to do the word of God, and I expect you guys, to live with, the sense of, with that sense. I expect you to live with a sense of you know, striving to live without hypocrisy. I mean, all of us are, are imperfect. Uh, by definition, to, you know, to ever declare the Word of God is to be a hypocrite, because you're saying, here's the standard, and then failing to live up to it. So any of us who have ever said, you know, the Bible says this, are in effect hypocrites. But the gap between what the Word of God says and how our lives look should always be closing. should never be expanding right we should always be by the power of god getting closer to that being perfected by the lord and nehemiah says guys you cannot be selling your your fellow citizens into slavery just to make yourselves rich and he goes in chapter 5 verse 14 he says moreover from the day that i was appointed to be their governor in the land of judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of king artaxerxes for 12 years In case you can't do the math, he says, let's just remind you, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. He says, as governor, I have certain rights I'm allowed to take. I am allowed to actually tax you guys to pay for whatever food I want to have in the governor's mansion. And I didn't do it for 12 years. I chose instead to live frugally, to live below my means, so that you guys could do what you needed to do. That's leadership. That's servant leadership. That's leading from a point of not what can I get, but how can I give to the people? How can I empower the people and equip them to do the work of God in their own lives? How can I let these people live in the land that God has promised them? How can I let them achieve what God is trying to work out in their hearts? Nehemiah says, I will not take this money from them. And he goes on, he's actually, uh, he he gives us the list of, You know, the diet for the day, he's he's got 150 guys at his table every day. And each day they have one ox and six sheep and birds. And once every 10 days they have some wine. That's a, you know, I mean, I haven't measured it out, but six sheep and one cow for 150 guys doesn't strike me as all that lavish. You know, so Nehemiah is not, he's not trying to rip the people off. And and what happens as a result of that? Well, what happens is you get to chapter 6. Do you notice how we work through these things numerically? After chapter five comes chapter six. Chapter six, the wall gets finished. The people work. It says uh, the people had a mind to work. And that's, you know, if you've ever worked on a project with somebody like that, that's an inspiring place to be. When people have a mind to work, it's enthusiastic. Right? When people don't have a mind to work, it's about the most draining place you can exist. But the people had a mind to work. And so what happens in chapter six, verse 15? So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul. That's another Jewish month. In 52 days. For 150 years, these walls sat broken down. And Nehemiah responds to the call of God on his life and the walls are rebuilt in 52 days. And when all the nations heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So not only does the wall get rebuilt, but the enemies of God are forced to say, dang, God is fighting for these people. That's gonna impact all of our, like basically we just kind of, we lost, right? So the wall's rebuilt. This wall is actually, portions of this wall are still standing today, 2,400 years later. And... uh, they actually, they can sort of figure it out because it's the least professionally built part of the wall in Jerusalem. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of, you know, mostly rubble, but hey, it's okay. Um, the perfumer, his work still held, right? And, but what's, you know, what's, I mean, what do we see in here? God is not interested in calling people just so they can say, you know, this is the thing that I'm best at. Obviously the Lord wants me to do this. And so I'm going to go for it. No, the Lord Yes, the Lord does give people gifts and he prepares them for things, right? But what's Nehemi- Nehemiah is a government official. Um, he's not a stonemason. The perfumer, the goldsmith, all the gals doing the work, none of them are professionals. The Lord is not interested in professional Christians. The Lord is interested in Christians who say, you know what? I'm just trying to walk with the Lord. I'm, I'm you know, reading the word, praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And as I'm doing this, I'm seeing an opportunity from the Lord right in front of me. There's something right outside my door that i can help with and so i'll take that and i'm truthfully not very equipped at it um but it's the opportunity the lord gave me so i'm gonna take it that's what the lord is looking for in in i think it's second corinthians paul says don't you know that there's not many mighty called not many strong not many powerful the lord really isn't interested in in you know the brave and the beautiful and the brilliant the lord likes losers um he loves working through losers because at that point, everybody says, it was obviously the Lord. And so if you ever feel like a loser, then you are in a beautiful place to be used by the Lord. Right? It, it's a great thing when you find yourself entirely out of your comfort zone. And it's, it's terrifying. Oh, yeah, sure. But it is a beautiful opportunity for the Lord to really establish his power and his glory. Without having to worry about you stealing it. Because you and he and everybody else will all know that... It wasn't you, or it wasn't me. So that's really the first half of Nehemiah. That's rebuilding the wall. The rest of the book is much more about rebuilding the spiritual legacy. And it, it moves a little faster, uh, so we're not, if you're worried about the time or whatever. Is anybody worried about the time? No. Okay, well then, then why did I even bother saying it? Worst case scenario, I'll just talk a little faster. Chapter seven is just a census of the people who are in Jerusalem at the time. Chapter eight, is where we'll primarily park for the rest of the night. Chapter 8, um, they all gather together after this is right after the walls been built, and what they're going to do is they're going to study the Word of God. And chapter 8 of Nehemiah, in a lot of ways, is sort of our church's philosophy of ministry in the Old Testament corollary. And what happens in chapter 8? Well, Ezra, the scribe, you'll remember we talked about Ezra last week, Ezra's a guy who's He's very well versed in the scriptures. He's very well versed in the law of God. They want Ezra to read the word of God to them. So they build a little wooden podium so that he can be high enough up that the people can see him. It's not because he's smarter or shorter or whatever. It's just so the people can see him. And it says that the men, the women, and everyone who could understand are gathered together. And Ezra reads from the word of God and explains the word of God. They worship, and it even gives us a little bit of a, of a service order In chapter chapter 8, verse... Oh, heck, we'll just read a couple different portions. Chapter 8, verse 6. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, and he gives us a list of names here, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So they worship the Lord, they read the Word of God, and they explain the Word of God to make sure people can understand it. They don't get any more complicated than that. And so as a church, this is really how we strive to do things. What do we do? We worship the Lord, right? We open up the Word of God, we read the Word of God, and we explain it. We don't try and go into fancy sermons, because you know we're not smart enough to do that. Um, but we can read the word of God and explain the word of God and say here's what the word of God says and so here's what you know I mean okay we're gonna it's Palm Sunday next week so we're gonna do a Palm Sunday Easter Sunday message but we're gonna after that go to 1st Thessalonians and then we'll go to 2nd Thessalonians and we're going Old Testament New Testament Old Testament New Testament so after we get through Thessalonians we're gonna go back to Ezekiel after we get through Ezekiel we're gonna go through 1st and 2nd Timothy and then we're we're gonna go back and forth you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna go through that until we get through Revelation of Malachi. And you know what happens when we get to there? We'll go back to Genesis. We'll go back to Matthew, right? On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible at a faster pace. Last year, we got to Revelation. Last week of December, you know what we, do, you know what we did in January? We went to Genesis, right? Because we don't have, we don't feel the need as a church and, and because the word of God is sufficient. We believe that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. and It's able to pierce. Through the divisions of body and soul to the spirit of the person, and so we don't need intellect, we don't need brilliance, we don't need anything else except the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a church, that's our goal. And, and if you say, "Well, that's just in the Old Testament," well, in Acts chapter two, verse forty-two, if you really want sort of the like the official, you know, here's the verse we go to: Acts two forty-two. It's easy to remember because it's the same forward and backwards. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then a couple verses later it says, And the Lord was adding to the church daily those who should be saved. So the, the early church in the book of Acts and the Jewish people here in the book of Nehemiah, what were they doing? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's that? That's the gospel as Jesus Christ came to earth, died for your sins and rose again, and is now ascended into heaven so that you can have the power of the Holy Spirit on earth and the resurrected life in heaven. In the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, what's that? It's interacting with each other. And that's not just, you know, talking, but that's actually, how can I pray for you? That's why we take a break between worship and teaching and say, how can I pray for you this week? To the breaking of bread and to prayer. We break bread every Wednesday night, right? Uh, especially if you don't like the food or the soup, and then you grab the bread. And, and we pray, right? We don't just say, how can I pray for you? We pray for you. And, and we believe that if we do these things, the Lord will add to the church the people who are new need to be saved. And so chapter eight, that's what happens. And what goes from there is as the people are hearing the law of God read, the people start to get, receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and, and it, it's just, it's one of my, it's a, it's a killer portion of scripture because the people start to, they start to weep and Nehemiah says, hold it, pause, Nehemiah and Ezra get together and say, hold it guys, hold it. Yes, conviction from the Holy Spirit is a great thing, but we are here to celebrate what God is doing. And so today is holy to the Lord. So go eat the fat, drink the sweet. Send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a day of holiness. Now, I've been chewing on this for the last couple of days. What do we generally associate holiness with, truthfully? It's usually if somebody's really holy and we say that, like that person is way holy. What do we mean really? We mean that person is a little bit wooden and a little bit stiff, right? Usually, holy people aren't that much fun to be around, truthfully, right? Like, really holy people don't eat certain foods, they don't play certain games, they don't go to certain restaurants, they don't, you know, they don't do, they, there's a lot of things they can very quickly explain to you, no, I don't do that because I'm holy. And Nehemiah says, guys, today is holy. See so you know what we're gonna do? Go eat the best food you can find. Go eat the sweetest food you can find. And if you meet somebody who doesn't have great food, send some food to them too. Because today is holy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Holiness equals Yeehaw, Christianity, okay? We should not be, like, holiness does not equate to frowns. Holiness equates to joy. If we want to be strong in the Lord, we stand in the joy of the Lord, right? The gospel is, it's a serious thing. Jesus died for your sins because sin is serious, right? Sin brings death, but the point of the gospel is not death, the point of the gospel is life. Jesus said, I came that they may have a life and that they may have it abundantly. The point of Christianity, the whole summary, is that we are living the most joyful life you can possibly fathom on this earth, right? We are, we are maxing it out. And sometimes we confuse that. I, know, I remember listening to a guy who was sharing his testimony. He said in college, he wasn't a Christian. He was listening to these Campus Crusade for Christ guys talk and... One of them was sharing his testimony. He said, man, now that I've gotten saved, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't sleep around. And the guy's sitting there thinking, then what's the point of becoming a Christian? Because that's like, that's my whole existence. That's that's the only thing I do for fun, right? Why would I become a Christian if all I can say is, no, I don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. Now, if you become a Christian, you shouldn't be doing those things. But that's not the point. The point is, if you become a Christian, it's not what you don't do, it's that you have access to divine joy. You have access to the full glory of the Holy Spirit living in your life and bringing you God's joy, right? Think about that. Think about the, the, the power and the majesty that threw creation into being, right? The joy that created the diversity in life that we experience, right? I mean, I mean, just, just ponder for a second. We're going to get to Job in a couple weeks, and Job, when God starts talking, he just starts, expl- he just starts asking questions about his mysteries, and he says, you know, hey Joe, what do you what do you know about the world that I made, right? Think about the world that we live in. Think about how incredible, incredibly precise and ordered and logical it is if you're a mathematics person, right? If, if and we can come up with all these formulas and equations and logarithms and all these things to express sound and and there's waves and all these things. Or you can look at it from the totally other side, which is like, man, there's colors and there's shapes and there's all these you know arty-farty things that are just super cool. And you can look at either one and, and find incredible wonder in it, but they're both completely connected, right? God has this joy that can just laugh things into being. And Nehemiah says, hey, today's holy. We're holy people, so let's walk in the joy of the Lord. And that's, that's, where, that's where these people go. Now, you know, like any, almost any book in the, in the Old Testament, uh, we get a super exciting part, and then it kind of trickles down a little bit. But that's all right. Chapter nine, the people basically confess their sin and declare to the Lord the commitment they want to have to Him. Chapter ten, they sign, they basically sign a commitment of, hey, we're going to serve the Lord. Chapter eleven, a little bit of time goes on, um, and then chapter twelve, we just get some of the logistics of who's in charge of what and and all of this. Chapter thirteen, Nehemiah says he had to go back to Persia because the king had let him come uh, to rebuild the wall, and then he had to go back for a while, and then he comes back again. And when he gets back, he realizes uh, people are all backsliding again. And, and truthfully, it's just, you know, it's, I think it's an important thing, to, and thing for us to grasp is people all sign this document of we're going to serve the Lord, right? Go for it. And, and you know, we still kind of do that today. And we, you know, we sign whatever, purity pledges and uh, Whatever else, and those things aren't bad actually, for the fact that they almost never work, because you make an oath that, that's that's hinging upon your resolve. Well, your resolve is is pathetic, right? My resolve is pathetic. My ability to not sin by my own willpower is non-existent, right? I can't do it. I mean, you know, if I'm like really feeling it, thirty seconds, I I, I could probably pull it off, maybe. <laughs> maybe if I'm lucky I could get 30 seconds, right? But willpower gets you nowhere. And, and, and we understand where these people are coming from, but we've got to understand as New Testament believers, you know, if you want to make a resolution with a friend and try and hold each other accountable, I'm not saying that's wrong. But we don't walk in righteousness by resolutions and, and by, you know, objectives and willpower. We walk in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk in holiness by God's presence by God himself living in us and equipping us, not just reminding us of what we should do, but actually empowering us, giving us the, not only the desire, but the ability to do the right thing. And these people, you know, truthfully, we'll cut them a little bit of slack because this is before uh, the day of Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit comes down in that kind of a way. But Nehemiah comes back and realizes the people are, are backsliding. And even, you know, we said that guy, there's those three guys in the beginning of the book who are always through it. Well, one of these guys, over the course of time, managed to become the son-in-law of one of the priests. And this priest decided, you know what? Let's let him move next door. We've got an empty room in the temple we're not using, so we'll just use it as his spare bedroom. Nehemiah comes back from Persia and finds this pagan dude's stuff sitting in the temple. So what's Nehemiah do? Like any good landlord, he just throws it all out in the street and says, clean the room out, guys. We are dedicating this to the Lord. And Nehemiah, he then goes on. And kind of like last week, the people are are participating in mixed marriages where they're marrying pagan women. And Nehemiah says, guys, this has got to end right now. Nehemiah ends the book by calling the people back to say, you have got to keep your eyes on the Lord. You have got to remember your own weakness and your own inability. He says, listen, Solomon uh, was like the wisest guy on earth and foreign women made him sin. You guys are not that smart. You are not that wise. And so if you marry foreign women, you're going to fall into the exact same sin. And Nehemiah, he's basically just, you know, chapter 13, he's just basically, he's hammering at him. He's saying, guys, we have got to, we have got to live like the word of God matters. And the final sentence of the book, he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. Isn't that a great prayer? Yeah. Right? If you want to be remembered by the Lord for something, if I want to be remembered by the Lord for something, I'd rather he didn't remember my mistakes. Right? I would like the Lord to say, you know, it seems like there's some things, I, I can't remember those, but yeah, I remember all the good things you did. That's what, I'm, that's what I'd like. And, and praise the Lord, that's what he does, right? He's cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Um, Nehemiah's prayer, though, Nehemiah lives, you know, sort of just summing up his life, Nehemiah responds to the call of God in his life. He lives like the word of God has power. He lives a life that inspires other people to live out the word of God in their lives. And what's he do at the end of his life? He's still going. Nehemiah, is, he hasn't hit this point of like, hey, we built the wall, time to cruise. Hey, you know, I mean, I, I, I hit a pretty good stretch there. Uh, no, Nehemiah is, is, as the book ends, he's saying, God, let's, you know, remember me for good. Help me to keep pressing forward in goodness. And, and that's really the call from God to each one of us. There were never... We're never called to hit a point of spiritual retirement. We're never called to hit a point of, of coasting or cruising. Christianity is like swimming upstream. You're never stationary. You're either moving farther upstream or farther downstream. And, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, again, we're not, gonna, we're not swimming up by our own strength or our own resolve. We are, we are progressing forward toward the kingdom of God by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's Nehemiah's life. Now... As we're going through the Old Testament, we're trying to always also, you know, and and sort of considering why should we look at one of these books of Scripture? What, you know, we're trying to also remember, okay, where does Jesus Christ fit into the book of Nehemiah? Well, interestingly, uh, flip over to the book of Daniel, if you would. We're going to wind up at Daniel in just a few weeks. Um, There it is. In Daniel chapter 9... Daniel receives a prophecy from the angel Gabriel. And uh, it's sometimes called the 70-week prophecy. And it's, uh, it's actually a super important prophecy, and it's been partially fulfilled. We're still waiting for the end of it to be fulfilled. But in chapter 9, verse 24, the angel Gabriel says, "...seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place." That's, in other words, 70 weeks to finish everything up in, in the world. And truthfully, some of your translations say 70 weeks. Um, a, better tr- a better way to read it is 77s, all right? Um, yeah, most, a lot of the prophecies have some numerical value to them. So 77s, and really 70 periods of seven years. So in verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or more like seven sevens and 62 sevens, which is what? 69. So from the order to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 69 sevens. What's 69 times seven? It's 483. I didn't just do that in my head. 483, there's going to be 483 years from the order to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince. Well, in Nehemiah chapter 2, what do we get? The king gives an order to rebuild Jerusalem. And you can fast forward 483 years. And uh, guys smarter than me have, have calculated if you factor in the lunar calendar and, and the, the Jewish calendar is 360 days, and so they throw an extra month every so many years. And if you break it all down and factor in their leap years and all that, 483 years later after this, this is a historical date when this king says, go rebuild the city. 483 years later to the day, it's called Palm Sunday. 483 years later, Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? Throughout most of the scriptures, most of the gospels, Jesus keeps referencing, you know, my hour hasn't come, it's not time yet. Um, he he kind of holds off on really letting people worship him as he's like, eh, you know, kind of keep this under your hat a little bit. You know, I healed somebody, but let's not tell everybody. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in to the most, at that point, really the most packed that Jerusalem ever was. And he allows all the people to declare, "Blessed is he comes the name of the Lord. He allows the people to worship him as the Messiah. Why? Because from the order to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there's gonna be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 483 years. Nehemiah is the start point of this countdown. Jesus hit the end point. And then, And then when we get to Daniel, we'll explain the rest of the prophecy a little more. Basically, there's a pause. And then... At the end of time, that 70th week or that 70th seven-year period is going to come into play. And so that's for another discussion. But, um, but Nehemiah gives us the beginning of one of the most detailed, specific prophecies in all of Scripture. And it is really amazing. If you crunch the numbers and, and read the data, it's like, to the day. Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem. And that's, Nehemiah's the beginning of that. That's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the man who responded to the call of God in his life. Next week is the book of Esther. Esther is sort of the female equivalent. She's the gal who responded to what the Lord was doing. And so we will find ourselves in Esther next week. But if the Lord is calling you to build the wall in front of your house, it doesn't matter if you're a goldsmith or a perfumer or a guy or a gal, It doesn't matter what your qualifications are. If it's the wall in front of your house that needs to be rebuilt, the Lord is giving you everything you need to rebuild the wall. Because he says, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Right? That's really the message in Nehemiah is God working through the lives of inadequate people to demonstrate his glory. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We praise you just for your, your constancy in it and just how it's such an incredible message that never changes and holds true. Uh, From 2,400 years ago when these people were living out your word to our lives right now, your word is still relevant, and it's still guiding us and leading us. We pray that it would impact our hearts, that it would uh, bear fruit in our lives. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst as as we're going out from here. I pray that you would equip us to to see the opportunities that you're giving us to respond to them. I pray that you give us the boldness and the strength and the willingness to let your spirit work through our hearts and our lives. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.